Today we're going to be talking about knowledge as hierarchical from chapter four of Leonard Peikoff's book, Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand. Stay tuned. All right, so let's dive right in with a summary of this section. Leonard starts out with the point that concept formation involves an order that later knowledge builds on earlier knowledge, that we start at the level of perception, we form our first concepts directly from perception, and then as we gain abstractions from abstractions, we get further and further from the perceptual level, and that the earlier material makes possible the later material. That knowledge, in other words, is hierarchical, that it builds on itself, and that in order to grasp the later knowledge, you have to grasp the earlier knowledge. And this is true of concepts, it's true of all knowledge at the conceptual level. And this is really important, and what makes it particularly important, the reason that we have to really bear it in mind, and that this is a central piece of objectivity, is the fact that it is possible to skip levels, if you want to put it that way. That it is possible to take over, start using more abstract knowledge without having gone through all the intermediate steps. And if we want to make sure that our concepts are valid, if we want to make sure that our knowledge is knowledge, we need to make sure that we've gone through those intermediate intermediary steps. We need to make sure that our knowledge is grounded in perception. Now, uh, Leonard stresses an important po point that hierarchy is a type of context. We said that knowledge is contextual. That is, it's relational. To understand any piece of it, you have to understand the items conditioning it. And Leonard gave a list of what that involves, the fact that in order to understand, apply, and this is the key, validate knowledge, you had to grasp its context. And a hierarchy is, is a context. It's the kind of downward-looking context from an item of knowledge to its roots in perception. So then, just as we saw with the metaphysically given fact that knowledge is contextual, there was a norm, which was integrate. Now we get from the metaphysically given fact that human conceptual knowledge is uh, hierarchical, that the, the norm is to reduce, to go step by step down the hierarchy until we reach the perceptual level. And we get an example here of friend and then a discussion of, well, why is this so vital to engage in this kind of reduction of our concepts and of our generalizations? And Leonard starts out by saying, it's in self-protection is the first aspect. That is, if you know the roots, you're not susceptible to what Ayn Rand called stolen concepts. That is, using later items of knowledge while ignoring or contradicting the roots the, the cognitive roots that made that knowledge possible. But then there's a deeper reason, which is that it's not just that you have to know that in self-protection, like if somebody comes around and starts stealing concepts, it's that in order to know that your concepts and conceptual knowledge are real knowledge, you have to know those roots. You have to see that relationship to reality. Otherwise you can end up, for example, with the kinds of invalid concepts we were talking about before, package deals, uh, anti-concepts and certainly with floating abstractions that is your idea is being cut off from reality and therefore you unable to see their connection to reality to be able to apply them to actually be able to make cognitive use out of your knowledge 
And so we have to reduce, we have to be aware of the kind of essential necessary order of learning of our ideas in order to validate them, in order to use them. And this is really the essence of proof. Leonard ends the discussion then by talking about in uh, what way objectivism is unique philosophically as paying real attention to hierarchy. And he doesn't use this example, but what we'll see later is one of the central arguments in objectivism, which is the basis of uh, the objectivist ethics, which is Ayn Rand's argument that to grasp the concept of value, you have to understand its roots in life, that it's the only life that makes the concept of value, value possible. And this is a reduction. She starts with what are values and why does man need them and reduces it and says, well, in order to grasp the concept value, you'd have to be able to grasp things acting in the face of an alternative. You'd have to be able to see entities acting and that the outcomes of those actions having some impact on those entities, that something hinges on its actions. And then, well, what makes that possible? How do we grasp that? Well, that it's only life or death. That's the only fundamental alternative that is going to uh, enable us to grasp the concept value and that ultimately the distinction between life uh, living organisms we can uh, pretty easily draw that down to perception so reduction as proof this is really at the heart of objectivism and that's why it's at the heart of objectivity so one of the things that i found very helpful about this section was in getting clear on why Ayn Rand's grasp that objectivity involves both existence and consciousness was so important. That getting the contribution of consciousness is not just like a fine detail, but it goes to the core of unlocking our ability to be objective. So if you think about what the advice we've gotten in this section, so far we got the idea that knowledge is contextual and therefore we have to integrate, and now it's knowledge is hierarchical and we have to reduce. And if you think about those, both of those profoundly involve the contribution of consciousness. Now, in the previous section, Leonard makes the point that there's an analog uh, to, to knowledge as contextual in reality, that is knowledge is relational. There are ca causal interrelations between everything in the universe. But with hierarchy, he stresses there is no metaphysical analog, that metaphysically everything just is that there aren't hierarchies out there in the world. I mean, obviously you could say from a certain perspective, you know, there's like a hierarchy uh, at a, at a, in a job or a hierarchy amongst the members of certain kinds of animal kingdoms. But if we're talking about in terms of like, are there hierarchies in, you'll hear, uh, for instance, Jordan Peterson talk about, um, you know, nothing's more real than pain and there's like degrees of realness and he's not unique in that. I mean, in the history of philosophy, you get, that kind of way of thinking of what the most real versus the less real and these kind of metaphysical rankings. Objectivism rejects all that. Hierarchy is purely um, contributed by the nature of our consciousness. And so it's precisely because Ayn Rand takes seriously the contribution of consciousness and that objectivity as a method has to reflect both existence and consciousness that she's able to see the centrality of hierarchy and then therefore the centrality of reduction is our method of validating knowledge. And so I think that kind of perspective is um, really clarifying about what is unique about objectivism's way of thinking about objectivity.
Um, which reminds me, there's a point I forgot to raise in my summary of Leonard's that I think is worth mentioning. So we have integration and then we have reduction, which is a certain kind of integration. It's that downward integration as the method of logic. And he makes the point that this provides a double check on our knowledge. It's that we're seeing the tie to reality and then we're seeing the tie to all our other knowledge. And that this is what this is the kind of process that we have to undergo in order to validate our knowledge. We're going to talk about more when we get to certainty, all of the kinds of implications and what we can claim about our knowledge once we've gone through this kind of process. Um, but the, the double check is important. It's that um, we want to grasp both that this item of knowledge, I can see its relationship to reality. I can integrate it with everything that I do know and therefore at, I can I can treat the, my conclusions, assuming they've reached a certain threshold of evidence, as conclusive, as knowledge. So I got a really interesting question about reduction and its relationship to induction. And in particular, this person pointed out that in OPAR, Leonard Peikoff defines reduction as what proof consists of, and that in a book based on Leonard's lectures by David Harriman, The Logical Leap, induction is referred to as proof. And I haven't gone back and looked at exactly the kind of ways that they formulated and whether they clash all, but here's the way I understand the issue. So in How We Know, Harry Binswanger makes this distinction between derivation and proof. So derivation is when we're grasping new knowledge from previous knowledge. It's that we're moving further from the perceptual level and grasping more about reality. And that proof is once there's a claim about reality. So that then it's, well, we need to tie it back down to reality. We need to go back down the steps to perception. So you can think about when Ayn Rand is coming up with reason as man's basic means of survival, she's to derive that from reality. She's taking her knowledge further from perception. And then once we hear that idea, we need to prove it. We need to go and trace the steps by which one can derive it from reality, if you want to put it that way. Uh, and so that's the idea of proof. And then for both derivation and reduction, or I'm sorry, for both derivation and proof, um, you have to under it can involve both induction and deduction so deduction is going from more general knowledge to less general knowledge and then induction is going from less general knowledge to more general knowledge and the the basic i think if you if you think about it that way um it's that proof involves reduction and then reduction involves can involve tracing both inductive and deductive steps. So that's uh, the kind of way to think about it. And um, I think what what Leonard's talking about when he's talking about induction is the nature of proof. It's that he's focused on it from the perspective of deriving knowledge from reality, the discovery of knowledge. And the point is that um, the primary form of discovery is inductive. Deductive depends on prior inductions. And that once an idea is grasped through induction, that is its proof. Um, logically inferring the more general from the less general is proof. It is, it is proof in the sense of it's, you validated this uh, item of knowledge. There's nothing more to do. You don't have to put it in some deductive form or something like that. 
But then once that is shared with people, that conclusion is shared with people, then they need to reduce it. They need to retrace the steps by which one initially derived it. One thing I do want to stress, though, is that reduction, if you're just reading OPAR, you can think about it as just grasping the steps by which one would have gotten an idea from reality. Um, but in objectivism through induction, part of what Leonard stresses is the way in which it's not just that you have to get the skeleton, like these are the generalizations that one would have to first grasp in order to grasp this later generalization or this later principle. It's that for each step along the way, you in effect have to recreate in essentialized terms the induction. You have to go and recreate those kinds of observations that somebody would have initially had to make in order to induce an idea from reality to derive it for the first time and so the the what i'm stressing here is the idea of reduction is kind of giving us the steps the intermediate items of knowledge but it's not just enough to identify those steps if you really want to have an idea to hold it firsthandly to validate it it's once you have that skeleton you have to retrace the actual kinds of observations that one would have to have gone through in order to grasp the item of knowledge for the first time so how do we actually reduce concepts and generalizations? And I think some people have found the example of friend a little bit confusing. And I mean, ideally what you wanna have is you wanna have lots of examples that you can kind of go through and work through. But of course, given I mean, the whole point of this book is to present an essentialized presentation of the whole philosophy. So. Uh, I think it's actually revealing how much space Leonard devotes to this single example of friend, precisely because it's a difficult issue that you really need to work through an example of. Um, but some people, so the, this example has been criticized by uh, David Kelly, um, who's a former objectivist, essentially, and he claims, well, look, Leonard's going into uh, in order to understand friend, you have to understand the concept of esteem and value. And, you know, how can that be when children don't know these words and yet they have the concept friend? And part of what's tricky about this, though a professional philosopher who claims to be an objectivist philosopher should know better, is that knowledge is a spiral. And what Leonard is doing is reducing the adult conception of friend, which is a much richer conception. Like a kid basically has somebody that I spend time with, you know, like who's not beating me up and maybe is even beating me up. It's a very kind of primitive uh, form of grasping the concept friend. But the adult concept of friend, if you think about friendship in the way that like, for instance, Aristotle is talking about friendship, this concept definitely involves maybe not the words value or even esteem, um, but that's not the point. It's not that you have to grasp these words, but you have to have at least implicitly and uh, um, the knowledge that those things are conceptualizing in order to reach friend. You have to have the idea that we're capturing when we um, have the concept of esteem or the concept of value. And you couldn't reach friend if you did not have those as knowledge in some form, even if not fully conceptualized form. Um, but it's the, and it's interesting in that regard that by the time then Leonard does objectivism through induction, one of the things he stresses is precisely because knowledge is a spiral, you want to try to uh, induce the, um, the conclusion in a, in a more primitive form, in the kind of simplest form by which somebody would first reach it. So just one example is uh, 
he he goes through the process of grasping reason as ba man's basic means of survival and says what do what would we strip out of there if we're going to get that for the first time well we'd get rid of the qualifier basic it'd be reason is unimportant means of survival and then it's a later discovery to think well is it the only one how does it relate to other potential things that are involved in survival and so you could say the same thing about um you know when we're looking at concepts that to the extent that it seems like oh well this is a simpler concept and i'm going back and i'm getting more uh abstract what's inevitably happening in those situations i think is that you're taking an adult understanding of a concept that in some terms you could have gotten earlier so i i found the best way to think about the reduction of concepts is to go back to the question Ayn Rand asks when she's going to engage in reduction of concepts, which she does with the concept of value, which she does with in introduction to objectivist epistemology with the concept of justice. And the way she'll put it is what gives rise to the need for this concept. And so you're in effect looking at two things. You're looking at what is the group of similar existence that this concept is integrating and are they actually similar? And then you're, do I need a new mental unit to integrate the similar existence? Like, is there an essential similarity here that's gonna pay off in further study and further use? And if you have that both metaphysical and epistemological component, then it's, yeah, I really need this concept. There's something essentially similar here that I need to be able to uh, open a folder for so that I can make, build up knowledge about the units over time. And it's and once you can, um, you do the work of answering that question, then now you've reduced the concept. You've said, okay, I can see what facts of reality about the existence that are being integrated here um, justifies, and in fact, in most cases, is going to mandate conceptualizing um, the, these units in this way. Some further advice, and this is more general than just concepts. Um, so one is you can ask, when did this idea arise in history? And part of what that's going to give you is, well, what facts were available that gave rise to this concept or to this idea? The, uh, for instance, I had a lot of trouble in grasping the and, and thinking through, well, what, how did we even reach philosophy as a subject? In what way did this arise? And one of the things, if you see good books written on the history of philosophy, um, they'll often talk about the way in which it was the Greeks, and this is a point Ankar Gatte has made as well, um, the, the Greeks are interacting with other cultures at the time in a way that was new. So you had a pretty developed culture and then it's interacting with other cultures. And what happens then? Well, if you'll remember I, in the first video in this whole series, I think I talked about the way in which um, if you've ever gone to a different country and you've realized that there's certain things that you just took for granted that were actually open questions. Uh, the one that I remember the most is, you know, when I lived in Japan, it's like how far you stand from somebody when you're talking to them, you know, what's our kind of individual space uh, bubble that we're comfortable with. And so once you had this kind of intersecting of cultures, things that seemed self-evident settled issues suddenly became live issues that people had to think about. So, I mean, just take it on the level of, um, you know, well, they have different gods and a different religion. And so 
which one is right and how do we answer that question? Or they have different views of right and wrong. How do we know that we're right? How do you answer that kind of question? And so having that historic perspective on, you know, when did humanity reach this concept? Or you can think, uh, it, one of the, in my um, podcast, Liberty Unlocked, I interviewed Lisa Van Dam, and she talked about how in her school, they teach the history of science, or they teach science through the history of science. And it's precisely because the history of science gives you the the hierarchical steps by which people went from very primitive observations about the stars about how things how bodies on earth interact about light and things it builds over time and into more and more abstract conclusions and you're in effect recapitulating the hierarchy by studying things that way and then you can also think not just when does humanity get it but when does a person get it? So when can a kid grasp a certain concept? Or when did I grasp a certain concept? And that can be clouded a bit because people can be taught things early. Like, you know, kids can be told, oh, everything's made of atoms, you know, when they're when they're seven years old. But but you can think about when I really kind of reached a certain kind of awareness of a concept, and that can give you an orientation of um, what what facts were built on what. And so these are kind of starting points for thinking about um, the order of learning when you're reducing. The the other thing, and this is more sort of tactical, I think it's very helpful to, if you're asking, so for instance, take something like, you know, reason is man's means of survival. And you I think a good starting point, you can ask yourself, like, what would I have to known in order to get this? the first thing that's worth doing is instead of thinking about what instead of trying to think both of um, the kind of sub points that you would have to grasp the previous the earlier generalizations in order just blurt them out and in fact like you, you know make uh, a laundry list write down everything that you think could be relevant and then you can start thinking about the ordering of those things you know so like what seems at all relevant here and just get it down on paper and I think that can go a long way, um, whereas you can kind of freeze up if you're trying to give your mind two orders, which is get the steps right and get the kind of relevant data that would have gone into reaching this concept or reaching this conclusion. And the and, and one reason why that's important is if you go through objectivism through induction, one of the things that occurs from time to time is that Leonard Peikoff will talk about the way in which well, here's kind of three things or two things, and I don't know that there's a necessary order um, that you could get any before the other. And so, the the just having the potential conclusions in front of you is going to be a big aid to doing it. Now that said, and maybe I should have led with this, um, Leonard stresses the way in which, no matter how much he would like to tell us otherwise. This is a hard thing to do. Reduction is a challenging process. And I found very helpful and liberating the way that uh, Greg Salmieri talked about it in a lecture he gave, thinking objectively. And you can think of this as in effect like, um, one way you could think of it is just like a basic reduction or a kind of like ongoing um, starting reduction, however you want to put it. And it's the idea of, Whenever you find yourself 
using or relying on an item of knowledge, just asking yourself, why do I think this is true? And why do I think this is true is really, and the idea is, yes, theoretically, then you could keep asking, why do I think that is true? Why do I think that is true? But whenever you find yourself using an idea, and it's an idea where you don't feel fully on solid ground, which whenever you're dealing with a knowledge you haven't really validated, isn't really secure, it can have the sense of I'm not on solid ground. Um, asking that question, why do I think this is true? The answer is what the answer really is going to be if if it's an idea that you've really grasped uh, its tie to reality. Um, it's it's in effect you're doing a reduction and it's you don't have to necessarily go all the way all the way back down to reality, but you go down one or two steps until you feel on solid ground again. Now, one of the really key points that Greg stresses here, and this is so important, is that you're asking, why do why do I think this is true? In other words, what's actually in my mind that uh, I regard this as true? So if the answer is nothing comes to mind, uh, or I think this is something I heard from Ayn Rand, um, then it's, well, no, I don't have real grounds for thinking that this idea is true, which doesn't mean you reject it, but you just mark it in your mind mentally as, um, here's an interesting idea that's worth might be worth thinking about more at some point, but you don't have it in the file of this is something I regard as knowledge. And he contrasts that with something I see all the time, which is, um, well, why do I think this is true? And then looking for reasons to justify it that aren't your reasons for holding it. And I, I noticed this for the first time, I think years ago with the issue of the minimum wage debate. And I would read conservatives who would argue for minimum wage and trot out like the latest study that, you know, looked at um, comparing some uh, city versus another city and did unemployment go up when the minimum wage went up. And this was not why they thought that the minimum wage created unemployment or why the minimum wage was bad. It was from basic economic reasoning. And so the if, if you start doing that, what Greg has called a dishonest reduction, what you're really doing then is you're kind of engaged in bias. You're looking for reasons to support a conclusion that you don't actually have grounds in your own mind to think is true. And so what you want is, do I actually have grounds? What persuaded me in the past? And then you can think, is this are those good reasons? Do I need to refine or do I need to kind of add caveats to the conclusion or somewhat? But you get that by just asking, why do I think this is true? And taking it back until you feel on solid ground. So you don't necessarily have to go through trying to retrace every single step from reality, though if you want to do that, that's fine. But it's just getting from less solid to more solid ground is really the essence of what you're trying to do when you're reducing. And then if at some point you realize, oh, I thought that was solid ground that I took this back to, but maybe it's not really, maybe there's more to delve into there, then you're able to do that. Um, one of the things that I think has come up several times here is that, that I really wanna highlight is that objectivity is not about a kind of like, all right, it's Saturday, I gotta break out my objectivity process. I'm gonna do half an hour of reductions, I'm gonna do half an hour of integrations, and you know maybe check a few definitions. That what we're really talking about is an ongoing way of using your mind. And that's why I, I think the, the thing I worry about when people read Leonard's kind of analysis of friend um, it's really helpful for getting the kind of pattern of, in, of reduction. 
But if you take it as here's this arduous, confusing, impossible process, then you will not perform it, or at least not in an ongoing way. But if you'll remember, we talked about with integration. Integration was not this kind of like, all right, sit down and do an integration right now. It's an ongoing process of asking yourself, what is this similar to? What is this different from? And it's the same with reduction. It's the ongoing process of asking yourself whenever you're engaged in, in trying to achieve or apply knowledge of asking, why do I think this is true? What are my reasons? And sometimes it's just a quick spot check reminder of, oh yeah, I think because of X, Y, Z, and that's solid ground and I'm able to go on. But what we're really after is, is an ongoing way of using your mind. And in the objectivist ethics, Iron has one of my favorite paragraphs, which I wish I would have actually pulled it out before recording this video. Um, in fact, hold that thought, I'll be right back. All right, so this is uh, from the objectivist ethics and it's 21 in my edition, but there's like 10 different uh, paperback uh, paginations for uh, the virtue of selfishness. So good luck with that. But so this is what she says. The process of concept formation does not consist merely of grasping a few simple abstractions such as chair, table, hot, cold, and of learning to speak. It consists of a method of using one's consciousness best designated by the term conceptualizing. It is not a passive state of registering random impressions. It is an actively sustained process of identifying one's impressions in conceptual terms, of integrating every event and every observation in a conceptual context, of grasping relationships, differences, similarities in one's perceptual material, of abstracting them into new concepts, of drawing inferences, making deductions, of reaching conclusions, of asking new questions and discovering new answers and expanding one's knowledge into an ever-growing sum. The faculty that directs this process, the faculty that works by means of concepts is reason, the process is thinking. And I really love that. It captures the richness of what it means to be rational. And then we can think about objectivity as specifying the kind of self-conscious rationality. But what I, what I wanted to really um, stress from that and what I'm really trying to stress here and hope you really take away is that we're to say that this chapter of objectivity is supposed to give us guidance is it should be giving us guidance of a process that we're undergoing all the time, not necessarily at every second of our lives. But, you know, if you find yourself going a day or two and you're not asking yourself questions of integration and questions of reduction, that should be a big red flag of, whoa, what am I doing? I must, I, I'm very likely coasting in some sort of way because we should be constantly using our knowledge and, uh, and, and to use your knowledge and to be active minded is in many, many cases, simply the process of saying, how is this related to everything else that I know? And how do I know this? And that's really, at the end of the day, all of the other technicalities and difficulties and challenges, it's really about better and better ways to implement the idea of integration and reduction. But it should be a very comfortable, enjoyable, common sense way of asking some pretty straightforward questions. So that's it for this video. Stay tuned next time when we will be headed into chapter five on reason. 
Until then, be sure to like this video, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and hit that bell so you don't miss any of the content. And as always, the best way to stay in touch, in touch is to go to donswriting.com and sign up for the newsletter. Talk next time.